Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today my guest is Glenn Platt, who leads esports initiatives for Miami University, where he's been for 29 years. He's going to give some tips on how you can start your own collegiate esports program and go deep into the differences of traditional sports and esports. Join me in talking to Glenn. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC, DLC Drop, Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right, Glenn Platt, thank you so much for joining me today on the DLC Drop Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, John. Looking forward to it. My pleasure. We were introduced to each other by a mutual friend, Jared Goldman. Just recorded an episode with him. Love his passion. Love, love what he's doing for the community. And we got connected. I want to say early 2020, maybe maybe early Q2 yeah. 2020. Yeah, sounds about right. Yep. Everything had shut down because of the pandemic. Uh, I was reached out to by my friends over at SMU and was pleasantly surprised when they said, John, will you write and teach a curriculum for our esports business management certificate program? And I thought, first of all, wow, never thought I'd have that opportunity. Secondly, how do I write a curriculum? (laughs) And I think I probably shared with Jared the opportunity. And he said, I have the perfect person for you to talk to. And here we are a couple years later on the other side. It was a success, Glenn. It was a success. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it got two years. It's like dog years, you know, it's like, it feels like that was forever ago. It sure does. My goodness. So why don't you give our audience um, a little better description of who you are and what you do at Miami University so they know who we're talking to today? Sure. Um, I am a uh... Uh, the Armstrong professor at Miami University. It's just an endowed chair. I'm the the founder of a department that we have there called Emerging Technology and Business and Design. So uh, we kind of teach all all the fun, cool emerging tech. So, you know, uh, AR, VR, XR and game design and game development and esports and digital marketing and social media marketing, UX, all the fun stuff like that. Um, our game program has gotten a fair amount of attention, has been nationally ranked a number of times, uh, and sort of out of that grew our esports program. And uh, along with one of our students, uh, we were uh, I, sort of I was the the founder of our varsity esports team, and we were the first Division One school to have a varsity esports team, and we've been really active and I've been really active in that space since. So uh, lots of speaking and uh, organization and that type of thing. That's wonderful. And you have been at Miami University for 29 years. Do I have that right? A long time. It's only only grown up job I've ever had. So yeah, I've been at, been at Miami quite a while. Uh, I guess probably also worth mentioning is I'm our graduate director and uh, in charge of our new esports management graduate degree. So that's part obviously of, of the kind of things that I think uh, I'd like to talk about today. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to digging in uh, with that with you. So to go just a little further, I want to kind of understand as esports emerged in the world, you were at Miami University way before, not not not, not too long, but you know, sizable, uh, a chunk, still, still in his prime, folks, still in his prime. Um, so you were at Miami University for a while, and then esports came on to kind of, you know, from the the Asian side of the world over through Europe, some rumblings in the U.S. And then I want to say the last five, seven years really took hold in the U.S. and became a phenomenon. Sure. What was that like now that you're leading these initiatives associated with esports at Miami University? What was it like being there, seeing esports come onto the landscape and then what it has become today? Yeah, I think it, it was. It's really interesting to think about how we dealt with it back then and how we deal with it now. Like back then, frankly, every single conversation was, you know, is this a sport? What is, you know, it was justifying it, right? There, I, I, we've moved into an era now where it's just a lot easier 
to to make the case that this is a thing and i think yeah. back then there was just a lot of conversation i can't tell you just the, i mean it was the same talk every time like you know is this a sport what is this explain what this is and and certainly that conversation happens still now but not not like it used to and now we've got a lot of numbers and metrics to talk about you know the size and scale of it and the growth rate and you know, every every major consulting sort of the big consultants have come out with reports talking about it. So, you you know, you can yeah. drop names like PWC and that type of thing. Right. And people people pay attention. So I think I think that's been the biggest difference is back then it was just so nascent that we spent far too much time justifying it and not enough time really thinking about how to build it. And and now, you know, the car's on the road and, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how to change the tires while it's running. And yeah, and so it's a whole different conversation. The DLC Drop podcast is sponsored by iShaker. I've been a huge fan of this brand for the past few years, ever since I met founder Chris Gronkowski. Uh, what I love about this product is the brand story, the functionality and the customization iShaker is a Shark Tank company invested in by Mark Cuban and Alex Rodriguez, owned by NFL players Rob Gronkowski and Chris Gronkowski. I love using my iShaker anytime I'm driving to the podcast studio, I'm going skateboarding, or I'm at the gym. No matter what I'm doing, it just does a great job of keeping my drinks hot or cold. The customization for iShaker is something that's super unique. You can get any name, just about any logo engraved onto your ice shaker and delivered to you within just three to five business days. Get your own DLC drop branded ice shaker at iceshaker.com forward slash DLC drop. Save 20% on all ice shaker products with the discount code DLC drop. Yeah, I think we're past that point where people are saying you shouldn't focus on this. You shouldn't waste your time. Now it's, wait a minute, this phenomenon, I have kids that are of, you know, these ages, they're all playing games, I get it, I'm hearing um, all about esports everywhere, I'm seeing these headlines, I'm seeing these these big numbers, what does that mean for us, rather than X years back, where it's right. just like, why are you messing with that, why are you wasting your time, That's 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 not a thing. Yeah, it was like it was like uh, in those days. It was just kind of getting in the door was hard, and now getting in right. the door is not hard. The harder part, I think, now is, um, I, th I think everyone gets that this is a thing, but they, I I think everyone wants to sort of map it into what they have understood sport to be, right? And and so I think that's now the mm. the the harder problem is everyone's kind of wanting it to be like a traditional sport and it for some very fundamental and pretty significant reasons it is not, right? And so I think I think now that people kind of get it, now we're talking about the subtleties of what it really is because mm. um you know people think it's different things like they you know they treat it the same way they might treat football or they'll treat it the same way they might treat treat you know video game uh just general video game play or 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 maybe something else like broadcast uh, might treat it uh, as an entertainment we've got people who treat it as a sport as a as a lifestyle brand right and sure. a fashion brand brand and so uh i think that that's now the well what is it because it's not something i've seen before that's that's kind of the hard part the early part that people just mapped it into what they thought they knew before that makes sense. Um, for our audience to better understand, not that we need to go exhaustively into the differences from esports and traditional sports, because that would probably be the entire episode. But can you give us just a few significant differences that um, people should know about esports versus traditional sports? Yeah, um, and I think some of these are, are more relevant to collegiate esports than others. But um, you know, let's run down the list. No, you know, number one, the IP is owned by companies. So traditional sports, the the intellectual property isn't owned by anyone. Nobody owns football. Yep. But in in esports, the intellectual property is owned by companies, which means the use of of any aspect of that. You know, the characters, the gameplay, even having a tournament. Right, all of these things get governed by companies, as well as the idea that the game itself can change. 
uh, you know, sort of imagining if someone were to raise or lower the goalposts of a football game halfway through the season. That happens. That happens in esports all the time. So the yeah. IP issue, I think, is actually really significant because a lot of things cascade from that. The media rights, right, and mm -hmm. all these other things cascade out of it. I think the second thing that's really significantly different is the relationship between the people who play the sport and the people who watch the sport. Mm. That there's this giant pile of people who watch traditional sports who never play it, maybe have never played it in their life or play it on rare occasions, but not of any sort of significant length of time or or understand the play very well. And in esports, it's it's quite the opposite, right? That most people who watch it actually play it also, and that that changes things. I think a third thing that's different is that esports is not geographically connected. You know. Um, I always think about oh god blanket on the movie was it mean girls i think it was mean girls the you, you can't make fetch a thing was that mean girls about um fetch a you thing? know everyone wants to i'm not going to claim that i've watched mean girls or you know i'm going to uh, claim that i haven't regardless of the truth so i don't know if i can but we'll we'll just say for argument's sake that that is we'll, from that movie i've heard we'll fact check that one later yeah um like everyone wants to make geography a thing with esports you know, right. you've got these geographic franchises, right? That kind of thing. But fandom in esports just doesn't work that way. Uh, mm -hmm. People tend to be fans of players, not even teams. And when yep. they're fans of teams, it's much more these kind of ubiquitous brands. And and that brings, again, with that, a whole lot of consequence. Then you've got games rising and falling every year, every, you know, not even every year, every couple of months, you know, something is coming up and something is going down. Oh, you've yeah. Recruiting issues where... The traditional path to pro was from traditional sports is, you know, peewee leagues and then high school and then college and then pro. And uh, frankly, by the time you're in college, you're almost too old for esports. Uh, right. At least some of them, most, most of them, um, the ones that are reaction time based. And so uh, the path to pro is out of high school, which is just creates a whole nother complicated mess. Uh, and then people make money before they go to college, which is problematic. There are gender issues, right? There are th these are all so significantly different, uh, as well as, I guess, broadcasting and the relationship between broadcasting. And then maybe one more here. Sure. As I'm sort of machine gun firing these at you, is in collegiate esports, like there's a very blurry line between the academic experience and the sport. Like in, and I do understand that in college they mm. you know, teach how to manage a football team or how to manage a baseball team, but you know there's this this really interesting sort of STEM-ish relationship between you know if you think about all the things that you need to know for esports, it's like it's it's absorbing all these other disciplines where. You, uh, there's broadcasting, which traditionally were in communication departments, and marketing, which is in business schools, and mm -hmm. game design and game development, which are in you know programming, right? Schools of engineering, and you know graphics, and so all these kind of different parts of the academic experience blur into this world of esports, and so its place within the institution, I think, is 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 very different than traditional sports might as well. I'm sorry, I got one more. I'm gonna keep saying one more. Please, no, don't, um, don't let me slow you down. You know, uh, uh, the other is, is is the complicated lies around audience, which we could have a whole conversation on. Because, I mean, you know, there's there is no bigger fan and evangelist for esports than me, but I get tired of a lot of people overselling what the audience looks like. Um, oh, you're I, preaching I the early days. to the choir. Everyone keep going. Knows yeah. Right. Like everyone knows it's going to be huge. But, you know, these these I hear it every now and again, like the the lie that more people watch, you know, League of Legends Worlds than the Super Bowl. You know, no, no, no. And, you know, and especially in collegiate, like we'll have games, you know, where there'll be 50 people watching like that doesn't happen with collegiate football. Right. Um, we We did. We had a national championship game that had more people watch then came to all of our football games for an entire season. So that's that kind of thing happens. But most of the time, it's a tiny audience. And so sponsorship and marketing and all those other things yep. are just different. Like the scale of the conversation is different. Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. And first of all, thank <laughs> you so much for listing those out. I, I definitely agree with all of these. I agree that these are all things 
if I was asked the exact same question, I do not think I would have come with all of these. So I really appreciate that. I'd like to ask you a question on maybe not all of these, but um, a few of these. Any of them. Do you see do you see a solution to the IP issue with publishers own the IP having full control of that, um, such as teams creating their own game and having a rev share system similar to the NFL or something like that or or something else? Or you do you think we're just living with the IP quote-unquote issue? That's a great question. I, I actually think we're living with the IP issue. So, but But I think we can live with it differently. I do hear the um the idea that you're raising there i've heard it raised a number of times right the ioc has talked about you know when esports comes to the olympics which isn't going to be anytime soon um it's likely to come with some sort of generic game to it right that right, will create the ip first for. question is oh esports in the olympics it's like which game yeah right so though there was talk they were going to make a racing game you know a car racing game and um, I was just at a conference in uh, Saudi Arabia where uh, the IOC was talking about this, and it's really clear there are ways away, you know, even despite some of the the things that we've heard in the media. Yeah. Um, I, w- I was at a, a, a esports and casinos conference uh, where the same thing was said, where the casinos were saying things like, I mean, because obviously there are IP issues, like the publishers are not going to be so keen on casinos having esports on the floor of Las Vegas. And so sure. the casinos were saying, or some of the casinos at the event were saying, well, you know, we'll just make our own games. And, <laughs> good luck. And I think the problem with all of that is that, right, is the good luck. I mean, Making a game, look, if it was that easy, right, more people would be making more money. You know, it's easy to make a game. It's really hard to make a really great game that has the critical mass that would be necessary to be a legitimate sport. And so I don't see any way that teams are going to be making their own games. What I do see, though, is eventually there's going to have to be a shift in power where the publishers simply can't call the shots as much as they do at the moment. And, you know, whether yeah. that's, I mean, one of the things that we're dealing with, I'm part of an organization called Voice, Voice of Intercollegiate Esports. We, we recently just launched it. All the presidents of um, pretty much all, literally all of the significant uh, varsity esports teams in the country are, are part of this organization. And eventually we're hoping all of the varsity esports will be part of this. But if it, imagine if all of the universities could collectively bargain, right? To be able Mm. to say, look, if you can't, you know, offer your competitions when we don't have finals, we're just not going to (laughs) play. And at that point, the publishers are going to have to at least, you know, be at the table for the conversation. Like it's just too lopsided a power situation at the moment because you got the publishers, which are sort of single bargaining powers, and then teams, whether you're talking collegiate or amateur or pro, whatever, Teams are just distributed, right? There's no, yeah. there's not a single voice there. And so in that sort of teeter-totter of power, you know, publishers are just, they're, they're the elephant in the room. And, and my hope is that that will change over time. I think it will. Would you say it's, it's kind of similar to the, the, the union labor challenges and the industrial revolution type days yeah. where you've got the employer, quote unquote, has all the power and is just dictating to people who just have to survive with the terrible terms or um, situation they find themselves in. Right. right. And I think that will change. Interesting. Yeah. I think with, uh, uh, you know, what, one big difference on the IP, I don't want to spend the whole hour on IP here, although we could, but is I tell my friends in traditional sports who, who are trying to learn more about esports. imagine if like football had all of these games that were very similar to football and maybe just as enticing to the audience that were trying to take out football continually. If you yeah. think about the number of games that drop every single year, ever just at every fall, every spring, and then when we talk about the longevity, so you, you have to create a, a game that is interesting and fun Right. But also, you have the longevity part of that argument, which you could argue we haven't even had one title that has stayed 
around long enough to say, okay, NBA, 76 years, NFL, over 100. I can't remember what it is. I think that Major League Baseball is 138 years, something like that. Like, like, well, they they still have to struggle to maintain and grow their audiences and all these things. And we do see those... uh, the younger generation going to esports, and that's what a lot of traditional sports are trying to figure out: how do we, you know, retain these people or, or make them new customers? Um, it's much more solidified and less volatile than the esports industry. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you think about what's required for something to professionalize. Like people have to be playing these games for years before they go pro. Like you can't like having an esport that just pops up and suddenly you've got a professional team from a game that just launched three months ago. Yeah. Like that that dynamic is is highly unlikely. <laughs> highly, highly unlikely. Well so there's there's that as well. There needs to be kind of like this ramp up to it. Right. I think it's incredibly impressive what Riot has done with Valorant. Yeah. And when I heard what what they call it, like Project X or something like that before they gave it a name, they said, hey, they're working on a a first-person shooter uh, game over here. And my, not that I'm a a betting person, but my bet would have been, hey, I think this has a great opportunity at success just because of the team at Riot, the learnings and experience based on League of Legends for 10, 11 years, and saying, wait a minute, if anybody's going to create a brand new game and turn this into a global esports league, it's probably the people who have the biggest and most successful league. But at the same time, I think <laughs> yeah. I think it I think the constant sort of sword that's hanging over their head is as a, is that opposed to traditional sports where professionalization is actually valued, fans of video games and esports for them, authenticity is everything. Like they will yes. drop a game in a heartbeat if they think a publisher is being unethical, inappropriate, exploiting them. You know it, it, that it's a money grab, loot box, um, loot box right strategy, there. and you're done. Yeah, yeah, right. Like mm-hmm. people, they'll just walk away in in ways that with traditional sports, you know. And I always think that. I've never been in the rooms where publishers are the big ones like that are thinking about games, but I have to imagine that that's sort of a conversation they're always thinking about. Like we can't sure. just publish a game that is an obvious, Hey, we're going to make the next big esport and make a lot of money. You know, it's, it, it's gotta be like a nod to the community yeah. uh, at the same time. Right. Absolutely. That, that's a challenge. Um, I have a question for you on the geography uh, point here and a little bit of a challenge because I have a little bit of a different perspective. So I'm I'm really interested um, to hear your your view on this. We know that it is true that the audience follows players more than teams, right? And yep. so that's a big problem for teams with all the other problems that they have from a monetization standpoint. Is oh my gosh, my best player left, and now we don't have his numbers, you know, to sell sponsorship against whatever. Um, right. Do you think that that is the behavior because there has not historically been locally geographically located teams so that nobody grows up saying, I live in Dallas, I'm a fan of the fuel, or I'm an optic fan. I, I'm i curious, and then if another argument for uh, the ge- geography play, but just on that audience uh, behavior do you think that we will see more people say I'm a fuel fan because I'm from Dallas because they have the option to now and we just didn't see it in the past? Or is that consumer completely different from the traditional sports fan? And you think they'll continue to say, no, um, that's my favorite player and I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. Another great question, John. Uh, you know, here I'll, I'll even make it a harder question. Please. And, so I'll, I'm I'm gonna channel my inner John on this one and and say, well, Glenn, uh, could this also just be that during COVID, when everything was virtual, being in a city didn't make a difference because you couldn't go to a live game, and so you know having having that sort of fan affinity of going to the local game and going out with your friends ahead of time and seeing your player that wasn't a thing, and so yeah. maybe the geography thing is really just an artifice of COVID. 
So, and, and maybe that is like, I don't, I don't know. This is not, this is not an issue. I have great confidence in. I just sort of look at the past and it just, it just hasn't quite happened yet, you know, and yeah. you know, NBA 2K, right? I mean, but it's hard to tease out. Is the problem the game? Is the problem the fans? Is the problem the geography? You know, it it's hard to say. I, I think I think that though maybe once there becomes more of a a local event quality to esports, that that geography thing may start happening more. Like, I think yeah. about where I live here in Cincinnati, I'm walking distance to the brand new soccer stadium that FC Cincinnati has. And once that stadium came in, like, people started going out for dinner in the neighborhood ahead of time and, you know, going to, like, events in the park prior to the games. And it just became a whole thing that was mm-hmm. very much obviously tied to the geography. And the team has just sort of skyrocketed in popularity at the same time. And I wonder if maybe once once we're all really back in person and we start to think about esports as an ecosystem of things that happen with events, mm-hmm. things will change. So maybe you're right. I think a huge difference uh, related to this matter is the traditions of esports versus traditional sports. And the traditions are generations old in traditional sports. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up, um, you know, people in my family were big baseball fans and so everything that has to do with pre during and post baseball game my family taught me because their family taught them when they were little kids and the whole reason that we were able to do that and live those traditions like they're just so incredibly natural is because they've been around for so long yeah and so while it's really difficult to say give it a hundred years <laughs> right there is something to give it a hundred years and we'll see where sports fandom is compared to legacy traditional sports yeah i i think part of that too so I've, I've lived in a couple cities like pittsburgh right where there's like you know this intense fandom around. oh yeah around sports and um i think something will have to change in the sort of loyalty of players to a team as well like i think a lot of those sports right there were the heroes that you grew up with that your family watched playing baseball they stayed on those teams for a lot longer than people are on teams in esports now part of it pre-lebron james i would argue good for (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, it's pre project, But even that, right? Like, the movement was like, you know, I mean, it was like, it was so, you were stabbing people in the heart, right? Right. Uh, but it, esports just doesn't quite have that that sort of sense of, of loyalty. And I don't know if it's because the gameplay window is so short time-wise or if it's players grow up not in traditional sports traditions and they don't. They I have a theory. Have, they don't have those kind of loyalties. Tell me your theory. My theory is it's all based on access to the player. Meaning. Okay. So you let's talk traditional sports first. Yeah. So I also really enjoyed playing basketball growing up. And so now I grew up in a small town without a local basketball team. So bad example. But so I grew up and I loved a team but I couldn't watch. Now the Orlando Magic were my favorite team. Was my favorite team, Penny Hardaway and Shaquille O'Neal. Those days, I was the biggest fan. I couldn't watch Shaq practice. I couldn't chat with him when, uh, during his off days, right? I couldn't do these things that we can. The, the access that we have to pro gamers who stream. Now, not every pro streams, and that's a whole other uh, situation. But the direct access that you have. You get to know that person. You get to know what they, you get to know that Crim6 loves Porsches and, you know, is all into racing and all of these things outside of uh, right. Call of Duty. And so I think it, it's two things. You're growing up with that, tra- that tradition of the model of following a team, right? Like I'm a San Francisco 49ers fan because I grew up in California. And guess what? My family were San Francisco 49ers fans. So I, yeah. It wasn't even a choice to be 
a Cowboys fan. Sorry, my Dallas friends, since I live in Dallas now. Um, but when Joe Montana famously got traded to the Kansas City Chiefs, we didn't become Kansas City Chiefs fans because I didn't know one thing about Joe Montana off the field. Because I didn't have access to him. I didn't get to know him as a person. And so I didn't relate. I didn't identify to him as a person. And so I think those two things of the lack of geographic tie and then the unique individual access makes you feel like you know someone. You're a fan of them. You feel like they're a friend more than the face of the team yeah. that you follow. I like that. I, I, that. That makes a ton of sense. We'll go with that. We'll yeah. say that's... Yeah. <laughs> I have one more question, and this will kind of bleed into, I think, I want to talk a little bit more about varsity esports and, and those things with you, is you talked about how the relationship of academics versus sport is different in traditional sports and different in the, than esports. Like I said, I grew up a traditional sports fan. I didn't know, I didn't grow up in a business family. I, didn't, I never knew I'd be a businessman and do all these things. But I never knew that pursuing a career in sport was even a possibility. Now, I'm connected to some schools now who do have strong, you know, sports career programs. It's all, it's basically either, I mean, my friend said, uh, you're throwing the party or you're hosting the party. You know, you're doing partnerships or you're doing activation. It's It, it feels limited. Yeah. I'm curious if... Part of the relation academics versus esports is um, number one, the technical aspect of everything that probably the kid who is the best at connecting the Xboxes when he went to his friend's house growing up grows up and starts his own production company because that's how he kind of naturally went. The other thing is, I think younger generations, Gen Z is very entrepreneurial. And I'm curious if that relationship has to do with just the trend of entrepreneurship, if trend is a fair word. And once again, the direct access to I can and I kind of have to be deeply involved with this technology and what a career would end up being just to play the game rather than just going out to the backyard and throwing a football around. Yeah, let's let's start with that one. Because I, I think... Um... I think it's the the lack of institutionalization of esports mm. that makes it a very different thing to a kid who wants to study this. And maybe it's, it's sort of a another way of saying the, the same thing that you did about sort of entrepreneurialism. That, um, like, I think that people who would want to get into sports management in sort of the traditional sense back in the day or now it's still very institutionalized, right? You're going to go work for right. ESPN, right? You're going to, you're going to work for a, a big talent agency, you know, some talent scouts, or well, you're going to go work in a marketing agency. To add to that, we're also never going to own our own team. Like buying your own, like owning your own right. NFL team or NBA team is just not even a possibility. Whereas, um, look at Nade shot, you know, used to work at McDonald's, played for optic started hundred thieves rule in the world. Now like this entrepreneurial thing where it is extremely tangible. Glenn, you and I, after, t after this podcast today, we could start our own team, you know, sure. consider it. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's right. You know, one of the, the tropes I think in talking about esports, but is, it is just so true. It's like, you constantly hear people use the phrase wild west. It's the wild west. I'm sure, I'm sure your podcast, you should have like some sort of, drinking game every time someone says wild west but like it will do that it is right like you know anybody can can start anything and you know there are no rules there are no institutions it, even the hundred thieves and you know even optic you know i mean there are some they're the big yeah. brands that you hear about but you know two years from now they may or may not be there and there'll certainly be other names that we don't even know right now sure. so so like everything is possible, right? It's that sort of American dream wild west where, mm. you know, you just sort of plant a flag and work hard and, and figure it out. And then at the same time, to come back to your first point, that it's empowering an entire demographic that traditionally d never even saw themselves in sports, who would who would refer to other traditional sports. It wouldn't even call it that. We'll call it sports ball or call it stick and, stick and ball ball, mm -hmm. right? Like those sports 
you know, this is now a whole group of people who are been like geeks and and nerds and love video games and suddenly have p- the power to to create businesses and to to do things that they've always wanted to do, like be a caster or or you yeah. know work in sponsorship. So I think I think it's those two things. And then the appeal in higher ed, of course, is everyone's just throwing money at STEM. STEM is right, you know, both in high school and in college right now. And this fits into the STEM narrative far better than games that people are getting concussions in and games that have, you know, ethical issues right. plaguing them. So it's just a nice appeal for universities as well. It's like, hey, we're gonna build out STEM stuff and we're gonna attract people. And and that relates, I think, to a, probably a separate point that I'll just tease out here. And if you want to talk some more about it, we can. But I think one of the really interesting dynamics with collegiate esports is, I think today it is primarily a recruitment tool. It's mm. it isn't even like Ohio State plays football uh, for the money, right? Like there's there's a lot of money going on at Ohio State when it comes yeah. to football. Um, I don't think any collegiate team actually i don't think i know for a fact i can tell you the the top 10 schools in collegiate sports are probably all i would go so far as to say all of them are losing money in esports like that is not a money maker but they're doing it because if you ask a kid you know hey have you heard of university x or college x i think five years ago they would have said no I I, did, I didn't even know right. that was a thing, uh, and now you're like, oh my god, that you know, that's where I want to go. Like that's, you know, that's the school, and that's why you've got these small colleges investing millions of dollars in facilities because it's really about admissions and recruiting more than it even is uh, revenue. Yeah, in fact, you could say that uh, universities are utilizing esports in the same way that publishers are as a marketing loss leader. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. I talk with a lot of brands. What's my play in esports? You know, what should I do? Um, I, I have a bunch of friends at different teams. And I think one of the hardest things about esports is it's where all the eyeballs are, but it's not profitable. And right. so you have people utilizing it for the marketing, for the attention to attract people to you, but then the people who are trying to build a sustainable business, which that thing requires. You can't have leagues without teams, and you can't have teams if these investors one day stop pouring their money in that is yet to turn a return, and that is another major difference and something that I think we're we're on our way to figure it out. I think it's going to be a little bit of a bumpy road, but the business model of esports is something that just creates a lot of challenges because to your point, you know, people see these big stats, you know, and they're like, oh, all the numbers, we found the silver bullet for youth. Every kid is playing video games. And I recognize all these sponsorable assets with jerseys and teams and content and something in Poland happened and a hundred thousand people showed up and right. blah, blah, blah. And, um, Oh, this doesn't make a profit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think, you know, one is this is, this is clearly just going to be a game of, of who can afford to lose more money longer because, yeah. Whoever's left at the end, at the end, someone's going to make money. Yes. Right. And so people are just, they're just trying to kind of define their territory, you know, and, and hold on to it for when that time comes. And so you're going to see the people, the winners at the end, unfortunately, will be the people who can lose the most money now. Um, you know, and, and that's, and that's because of a, a, a lag. Like I remember, you know, I, t- one of the areas I teach is, is digital marketing. Um, and back in the day, we, we used to talk about how the eyeballs and the money when it came to mobile marketing never matched up. Like if you looked at the percentage of time people spend on their mobile devices and yep. the percentage of ad spend, uh, it never matched up. People were, you know, companies were over investing in print and billboards and under investing because there's this lag that happens. Yes. Right. And the same thing's happening now. We know 35 year olds and younger watch more games and esports than all other traditional sports combined, right? We know this. 
but <laughs> you know there's this period of adjustment then the second thing is that not all eyeballs are created equal and you know all due respect to my 20 year old friends that's not where the big brands are going to be making their money they're they're making their money in the 30 to 40 year olds and yeah. probably the 40 to 50 year olds and so it's going to take a little time for that demographic to start to have a bunch of disposable income good point so that there is a return on that ad spend you know it's not that 20 year olds aren't buying the things that are being advertised i'm sure they are but you know when state farm is is sponsoring league of legends it's not likely the 20 year olds are really the ones that are moving the needle for them right but once they have houses and families and cars and really care about life insurance and dying then things start to change but it, right the demographic will need you know it'll need to move through the snake a bit yeah remember that remember that insurance company that supported me and I got to meet so and so and play in this tournament because they funded it XYZ. Of course, I'm getting my life insurance 10 years later yeah. from State Farm. Yeah. 100%. yeah, especially, I mean, insurance in particular, it's a commodity, right? For, I mean, I'll, I'm <laughs> saying, whenever anyone says all due respect, there, there's no respect. But, <laughs> but, 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 like, all due respect to insurance companies, like, they all sell the same thing. And so, you know, if, if one of them has meant more to you because they allowed a streamer that you cared about to be able to pay the bills and continue streaming, yeah, then, you know, sure, I'll get my insurance from them. I don't care who I get it from. I'd rather get it from someone that I know my money is going to support this streamer I care about. Very well said. Um, I want to pivot here to tap some of your specific expertise on collegiate esports. How can our audience who's listening, who are looking to start their own program on campus, how can they do that effectively? Yeah, I, I, I think one of the nice things about the sport, as opposed to all the traditional sports, is that the, the bar to starting a program is exceptionally low. I mean, if you, if you really think about it, all you need is a computer lab. I mean, it's a little yeah. more than that, but... You know, it's not like you need to build a stadium. It's not like uh, you have expensive equipment and rinks to keep up and ice to keep frozen and all these other things. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about if you look at the history of collegiate sports is it's always been very ground up. Like hmm. it's been, it's been the players who came to somebody somewhere and said, "Hey, can we do this?" Um, yeah. You know, because it's it's just it's fairly easy to do. You know, I I have found that the most successful way to begin is to identify a champion, you, you which is typically a student, right? But somebody who's going to sort of own this and and bring it all the way through. Hmm. The times that it doesn't work is when an administrator of a school says, "Hey, we need to have an esports team because uh, that's how we're going to be able to recruit high school kids." That. That right. won't happen. You need someone who's passionate. Thingly, a bunch of us have talked about this before in collegiate. By far, that champion for the successful teams has almost always been a woman, which is fascinating to me. Interesting. You know, given the gender problems with the players on teams, right? That sort of back office organization uh, has largely been driven by women. And so, so, so someone needs to own it. You need to identify a space. You know, it's not just quite a computer lab, right? And you've got to worry about network issues and because at universities, you've got firewall problems and, um, you know, software purchasing and updates and licenses and that type of thing. But, but you identify a space. And then this is probably the most important piece of advice I would give anyone looking to start a team is find what your student community plays most. Like, don't say we're going to start a League of Legends team or a Halo team. Like... Just find what people are playing and play that. That that's the way to succeed. You know, you can't you can't I mean, because of what everything you and I have talked about, that players they get attached to these games, they've been playing them for years. You can't just suddenly say you're offering right. this game and if no one on campus is really good at it or cares about it. I thought all these kids were I thought happen. all these students were gamers. Why isn't anybody showing up to our Smash event? Yeah. Right. And, and what that probably means is you got to let go of a lot of the prejudices that your administrators will have, like, oh, we won't do first-person shooters, for example, or we won't do red blood, we'll only do blue blood games. And, 
you know, and then you get to point them to the piles of research that indicates that violence in video games has no effect on actual real world violence, you know, but but you've got to be open to any game. Now, we're starting to see a little more kind of mainstreaming of all this because high schools, I think, are leaning heavily into Rocket League because it's the most brand safe and violence safe yeah. esport, you know, short, short of Hearthstone or whatever, that kind of thing. But sure. So, so maybe we'll start seeing a little more of that, like kids coming into college that are playing certain games because high schools were playing certain games. But, that makes sense. Yeah. But find where the energy is in your student body. You know, find a space. You know, at, at schools, esports tends to pop up in one of three areas. In student affairs, which is probably the most common area because it, esports clubs, like every university has esports clubs. Yeah. And, you know, that's where you're going to look to build out your team eventually. Clubs are always run through the student life part of the university, right? And that's why we've seen so many of these varsity teams get placed there because that's where the club teams are. We see it in athletics, but only at certain schools that don't have to worry about Title IX. Okay. Um, at schools that do worry about Title IX or schools that have big traditional sports or, uh, athletic organizations that are worried that they're going to get some of the pie taken away. Okay. Like, if you look at the big, the big traditional sports schools, they've been the last ones to get on board with esports. The big, you know, the Big Ten type schools. Interesting. Um, so, but athletics is the second place, and then the third is academics. Uh, so it could be, you know, part of an academic department. Uh, sorry, you got a question it. about that? No, appreciate that. I always tell people when I talk to uh, people at colleges or or, or trying to figure. Uh, the situation out. One thing that I, I stress is everybody on your campus, every kid on your campus is a gamer. That doesn't mean they're all competitive gamers. They're not all esports enthusiasts, to quote the, the latest data study that came out. How can schools, what is the overlap between gamer culture and esports? And how can you foster or distinguish that situation to number one set expectations with leadership who are like wait a minute there's 10 kids here why are we doing this and the other is to enable the community to thrive naturally yeah that's it's an interesting tension because uh yeah there is sort of an assumption that if you're good at a game then you should be able to play at a competitive level at the collegiate competitive level um we get emails daily multiple emails daily hey my kid is looking you know is is really good at you know game x what kind of scholarships do you guys have and then when you follow up and say well what do you mean by really good and yeah and it's it's clear quickly that they're not competitive that way um you know it's it's part of the education i i do often about esports there's a little bit of i've got kind of kind of a road show i do and i go around the country talking to leaders about esports uh, administrators is I, I always talk a little bit about the the stats on pro players like the literal things they can do right so you know a great stat is pro starcraft players take 600 individual actions per minute 600 things a minute they right. do right wow because it's a crazy complicated game. I don't even understand how to play. I can Starcraft. do way fewer things than that. Times. That's all I know. <laughs> way fewer. But, or, or they've measured cortisol levels of pro players, you know, and it's like fighter pilot level cortisol. Yeah. And reaction time is like four times the average human being. You know, and just reinforcing that that people who are competitive in this space, they are freaks of nature the same way that LeBron James is, right? And Shaquille O'Neal is that people right. these are people who just are unbelievably talented. They're not just good at a game. So you've really got to educate people about that. I think I think one of the problems we then face in collegiate is in traditional sports, people who are that good became that good by being part of teams their entire life. So by the time a LeBron James gets to college... Right. LeBron James has been on teams, has been coached, understands how this works. And and that is not the case when it comes to esports. Mm. That something even as simple, I know this is going to sound like uh, I am making this up, but I am not. We continually need to tell our varsity players, 
you are expected to be at every practice. Now, I can't think of a traditional sport where the varsity team would even have to say that. Sure. Right? But, but you know, these we're talking about practice, not like that practice, like, not the game I live and die I've for. Got to be nice to people. Practice and and yeah, everything about being an athlete is culturally new for these kids, and so. So it does blur a bit into, oh, they play games or are they like, you know, an elite level competitor? They're kind of in this weird both world um, where they have all those bad qualities of people who play games and they and yet they have the talent of this elite competitive player. It's such an interesting world. You know, there, there there's some stat. I can't remember where it was from or specifically what it was. So it's a perfect one for me to offer here on the air. Please, <laughs> um, But it was something like, so it was high school kids. High school kids who joined their uh, high school's esports team, schools who started one, the kids who joined, it was something like 87% of the kids who joined the high school esports team had never been on a team before that. They had right. never participated in extracurricular sports and so i mean that just i mean it almost gives me goosebumps just thinking about it because we know with traditional sports the benefits of being on a team right yeah there's camaraderie there's learning to win there's learning to lose there's you know the the discipline of showing up for practice every day there's learning specific skills there's communication and while it looks very different on the surface physically, physical exertion-wise, so many of these benefits outside of physical exertion are exactly the same. Right. And we 100%. are... 100%. And, and these kids are not getting that because simply the thing that they enjoy, the infrastructure, the ecosystem, the leagues, has not matured to a point where they've been able to do that their whole life like their athletic friends. And that's one of the things I think colleges can offer. Because, look, if, if you want to be a pro player in esports, you probably shouldn't go to college. Like You should probably right. go straight out of high school, right? 100%. So, So why would you join a collegiate team, right? And I think the reason is because of all those other things it teaches you. Yeah. That, that you'll, look, you're not going to walk out of there and be a pro player, but you know what? Jobs in esports in back office are doubling every year and probably will continue to do that for quite a while. And and so if you're able to say, look, I know how to manage a team. I know how to work with, you know, people and and uh, negotiate solutions and um, uh, and identify problems and know what a business opportunity looks. All these other things that you just you get it from that experience. I think that's what collegiate esports can offer, not a path to pro. I like it. Uh, I have one more question for you, and then uh, we'll sign off here together. Um, but, you know, sometimes on, on the topic of how to start a program on campus, it's great to hear what to do right. Sometimes it's just as beneficial or more so to hear what to avoid doing wrong. If you were to give listeners one thing, hey, when you're starting your program, avoid this common mistake, what would that be? I don't know. Can I can I give a couple? Yes, you I'm may. not sure. What I, I had a feeling you were going to ask. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm, I told you I was the worst. I hey, your long answers. Your resource time. of knowledge. Oh. I like it. <laughs> um, I think one is don't sell it to your administration as a revenue play. I see a lot of a lot of folks mm. say like, "Hey, start a team, and your alums, you know, they're all gamers, and they're going to give you money and donate money to the school and." And you're going to get sponsors. Um, just don't don't even try because you're you're going to have to like retrench. You're going to have to mm. walk that back at some point, and it's a bad position to be in. I think from day one, talk about everything else that is the reason to have a collegiate team. So so pitch it for the things you and I have been talking about: admissions and growing them as human beings, and having an alternative for your students to do instead of drinking and. Um, engaging more with local high schools right all these other reasons because they're all they're all great reasons um so that that i think is a really big mistake i've seen people do um at the same time i think the other mistake is on on the funding side is underfunding the team 
So hmm. building a team entirely on the back of volunteers. Um, you know, our, our voice uh, Discord server, like one of the continual themes is like, hey, look at this job that's being listed for collegiate esports. Look at this salary. And it's like 25 grand, right? right. Or 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 30. I mean, it it's right now it's just it's being underfunded it's being run by volunteers and and as a result it it just it loses its credibility as a professional thing because it just feels it still feels like a club right and and it just it you can't do it right you just need you got to invest if if you don't have the money to invest significantly limit the number of games you're going to have you know outsource your coaching to a lot of these hired guns that will do it from all over the world remotely but but give it the funding it needs to do its thing right mm -hmm. um underfunding it is just it's just kneecapping the program um so that's a pretty common mistake um and then i think um uh, maybe the last one would be not making a clear enough line between varsity and club esports um it's a it's an awkward dance for sure because it's likely that some of your best players are going to come out of your club teams and we know that national champions from universities in many of these games are often club teams they'll whoop they will whoop varsity teams all the time well wow. um but but y you've got to draw a clear line right that if you're if you're on a club team you know, what you tweet on your own time is your own business. And when you're on a varsity team, you're representing the university, everything you do, everywhere you go. Um, right. All these, all these kind of lifestyle things that make an athlete an athlete can only happen with a varsity team. And so you've, you've got to, mm. you've got to make a clear line, but at the same time, support and respect the club because club, club's amazing and everyone should have club teams i love our club teams they're just a different thing yeah and if you let them get too close together you know you've got you've got problems that can start to arise those are great insights i really appreciate your time today what are some ways that people can get a hold of you or follow you miami university and the program that you lead yeah, I mean, these days I always feel like saying I'm on everything. So uh, you, you, you can find me on Discord for sure. But, you know, Twitter and, and our team, Miami University, you know, Varsity Esports, we've got all, all of those social channels that are it's good to reach out. Our head coach, Jennifer Frank, is a good uh, first point of contact for anyone who's interested in playing for us uh, or or meeting some of our athletes or talking a little bit more about the day-to-day -day activity that, you know, she does all the hard work. I just, I just get the podcast. So she can tell you a little more about that. Our new master's program we're very excited about. It's an online asynchronous master's degree in esports management. Cool. It's uh, joint with our sports management department. And this is literally the first semester of it. We're very excited about it. So uh, for that, I would get in touch with me and I can I can help direct you on that. I do think we're going to start seeing more and more of these things. I know you and I have talked a little bit about the certificates and the degrees and that type of thing. I, I think yeah. universities are trying hard to figure out how we can fill in some of the gaps uh, because, as I know that you know, the industry has has evolved up to this point where people have played and then suddenly they're in the back office. and. Right. You know, you've got someone who's played video games their whole life and you're trying to explain the difference between a CPC and CPM ad, right? And, and right. there's no, this is all new, right? So I think universities can help fill in the gaps. That's what we're trying to do. Other schools are too. I, I think there's a lot of different ways to do that. In fact, there's some folks I was just talking to out, out in the UK that are doing it outside of universities. They're just having, you know, and I think that's legit too, but I think anyone who wants to get into the back office should probably spend a little time, you know, filling in those knowledge gaps that are really needed to do that job well. It's because it's like saying just because uh, you drive a car, you can fix a car. There's just there are different muscles. That's Good all. point. Boy, I, I could talk to you forever. I'll tell you that much. And yeah, this has been fun. I I, I know I got to come down to Dallas. So yeah, we'll we'll have to do yeah, a, fact, a round two in person sometime. To plug uh, 
our program just one more time. Please. Our our esports law class that one of the classes in the in the degree is is esports law is taught by two gentlemen down in Dallas, part of Greenberg Trorig, uh, which is a fabulous law firm, one of the one of the country's largest law firms. And they have a whole esports a game practice uh, that's based down there in Dallas. And so I've been down there with them uh, talking about about their class, and they they that's what they do. They teach it. So I I need to come down and visit them, and I'll. I'll come into the studio there and figure out if that plant's real or plastic. Hey, you got to be here to find out. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, I just so appreciate your generosity years ago, you know, helping me set my mind straight and get a get my first step in the curriculum world. And then once again today, join me today. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge. I learned a lot. I know the audience learned a lot. Thank you for joining me today on the DLC Drop Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.